what we found was that there was not a lot of use of the ENS system. While a lot of people like were really excited about the idea and like VCs we would talk to and stuff like that, we would mention like ENS, like loans by sending your assets to an ENS domain, we'd get people like writing down, they'd be like, wow, okay. But when it came time to use it, when we kind of unleashed it on the market, we didn't see everybody just swarm it, praise us, oh my God, this is the revelation. Uh, what we mostly saw was a bunch of nothing. Yeah, super, uh, super happy to have you here, Kyle. So why don't we just get started? Uh, tell us how you got into space and what excites you about uh, the crypto space. Yeah, so um, I first heard about uh, the blockchain in around 2011. Uh, I used to hang around these uh, computer security forums and all that. And in that community, uh, the blockchain thing was actually um, coming to be quite popular in those circles, even in those early days. And so I heard about it. I started learning about it. Um, I found it really engaging. I, um, you know, I, I had trouble with the, the Bitcoin narrative of peer-to-peer -peer cash. I felt like there were some frictions that might not be able to be resolved, but I was very excited about the underlying technology and I kept following it as I saw developments like colored coins, like name coin and peer coin, which are I'm sure like a real throwback for some people. And um, eventually um, I came across this project. It was a white paper at the time called Ethereum that just tied everything together and generalized the concept. And for me, this was just like, it was just like a spark of light. It was so exciting to see. And so I started following this very closely. And I was in, um, you know, uh, university during the time. So 2011, um, all the way up, um, quite, quite a few years, even as Ethereum launched, I was in graduate school and all of that. But after I finished graduate school, I had been following blockchain very closely. I had been there um, when a lot of exciting projects had launched and I'd kind of uh, built up a capital base and I was talking with uh, my friend Tom Bean who was an engineer at Nokia He'd been working at Nokia uh, or here, which was a spin-off from Nokia uh, He had been working there for about 15 years. He had been leading teams. He had been a principal architect He was basically this really hotshot engineer and I had been talking to him and as we kept talking he expressed an interest in building something in the blockchain space and I had been kind of nurturing this idea um, for a few months at that time. I had been talking to uh, talking to people like Stanley Kulichov about it, like way back before ETHLAND was even a thing. Um, and so I kind of, I went, I wrote out the idea in full, you know, six pages uh, or so. And it was this, it was this, um, it was this uh, three-stage plan for what we could build. And basically it was uh, the germ of the idea of BZX. So in the first stage, our plan was to build out a peer-to-peer off-chain signaling, on-chain settlement, uh, margin lending protocol that could be like a companion protocol to 0x and fit into the overall 0x ecosystem. Um, the second stage of it, um, we intended to tokenize the positions and the loans and the third stage of it, we wanted to work with wallet providers and dApps in order to abstract away the use of the token so that everybody could kind of be using our technology um, underneath the surface without uh, actually having to worry about it. As you can see, we completed our first stage. We completed the second stage of the plan. 
uh, we've been working on the third stage, getting in, uh, getting I tokens and P tokens introduced to various dApps and wallets. Um, you know, we we hit a little bit of a snag um, in terms of the integration uh, sometime this year, but otherwise, uh, things have gone uh, very well according to our original vision. Carl, give me a one-minute pitch on what exactly B0X is. So BZX is the only fully decentralized, generalized, and composable margin lending and trading protocol on the Ethereum blockchain. What does that mean? It means you're a trader. You want to come, you want to go four times long on Ethereum, you just hit four times long, buy, boom, you're in a trade. And you can do that for multiple assets. Um, we have both tokenized loans and tokenized positions. That means we're highly composable. You can put us in token sets. You can put us on um, layer two DEXs and have instant execution speed. Uh, you can put us in structured products. What I would say is that we are uh, the white label solution for the rest of the crypto ecosystem to easily integrate margin lending and margin trading in a full-featured, generalized way. Let's, uh, let's walk through the history of B0X. Uh, when did you guys write the white paper? When did you guys launch on the testnet? How long did it take you to go onto mainnet? And uh, what version are you on? And when is the next version coming out? Yeah, so um, I originally started writing the BZX white paper in uh, around the summer of 2017. Um, so I was, you know, very much inspired by like the Zero X white paper. Um, I was, you know, I was looking at things like Bitfinex, and I was thinking, you know, somebody should decentralize that. I don't, I don't really want to put my money inside of there, but I really do want to earn those yields. So somebody, you know, I, I several times I just like. I expressed to people, I'm like, somebody should really do something about it. And, you know, eventually I was talking to Tom and I was like, you know what? Maybe we'll just be the people uh, who do something about it since nobody, nobody is handling this. It turns out that like three other teams of people were saying the exact same thing. They're like, how is nobody solving this? And <laughs> um, so uh, we, we published the white paper around February. We were concurrently of 2018, we were concurrently working um, on developing it. So around uh, the end of September, September 31st was the first commit to the BZX GitHub. Um, so around, I would say, February, we, we had attended ETH Denver and we had put the contracts on the testnet. They were still um, undergoing uh, development and all that to some extent, but we had put it there, we had been testing. Um, and then uh, during the summer, we uh, had it uh, audited by ZK Labs. Uh, it took a little bit longer than we would have liked, um, but we ended up um, getting the audits done around, I, I believe it was like the end of July, early August. Um, and then that's when we launched to the mainnet. So we were just like a pure protocol play at that point. We had a, a JavaScript library, kind of like Zero X. We, I guess our initial, our initial ideas were a little bit uh, grandiose, perhaps, in that we thought, hey, once we release this onto the mainnet with documentation, with the JavaScript library, it'll be just like 0x. So many people will show up and it'll be no problem. 
And that was actually not at all how it was. And looking back, you know, I kind of smile like, oh, you know, really high hopes. Um, and, and, and it's not just you, right? It was, uh, it was DYDX. Uh, it was every other, uh, including Dharma and their version, version zero or version one of their protocol. It was just a protocol. They thought there would be an ocean of devs who were coming on board to build on top of their protocol, but that, that idea never materialized. Yeah, not at all. And, you know, I, I think it, it was it's, it was like more realistic in 2017 while we kind of like started out and we were building and, you know, like in February, March 2018, people didn't even know for sure that, you know, it was the beginning of the end, uh, so to speak. Um, but yeah, so we were we were building during a different time and it, it took us, you know, some time to realize that things had really changed. Um, so yeah, so we, um, we started doing BizDev. We started going and talking to every single um, ZeroX Relay. We said, hey, um, we built this protocol. It's really, this is for you. This is our gift to you. We built it and now it fits in perfectly. We thought of you the entire time. And they were like, wow, that's really interesting. No pressure. And um, what, they, what they were trying to communicate to us though, is that they were struggling so much to get ZeroX liquidity. They, you know, an army of people had landed on ZeroX building, I guess all of them thinking, hey, we'll be the next Coinbase. Um, and all of them were just like basically sitting there, you know, almost like just struggling, they're ja grasping for air. And we came in, we're like, hey, we have the solution. Your real problem is that you don't have shorting and leverage and all of that. And they're like, we're not completely sure that's like exactly the case. And we're like, no, no, trust us. You need to, you need to integrate us. That will definitely get you liquidity. So, you know, we we talked to everybody. Most people were interested. We had one uh, one team, um, Joshua Richardson at Bamboo Relay. He um, he jumped on. He saw our protocol. He saw the virtues of it. He, you know, he he had been basically at the forefront of every Xerox development. Um, and so he quickly integrated us, put us on his relay, and we were really excited about that. We were like, oh man, now we have an ecosystem. Um, and <laughs> but it turned out that Bamboo Relay wasn't really doing much volume. And it turned out that um, it, they weren't Xerox volume or BCX volume. We had a lot of users who were like, oh, great, so BZX is up. You guys are ready. You have an ecosystem. Where do I go? And we're like, Bamboo Relay. By the way, there's no one on the order books. So don't know about that situation there. Um, <laughs> so we did some goofy stuff where we like talked to different people about like, hey, would you like to market make on Bamboo? Um, maybe you want to do it for free because you love DeFi so much. I don't know. Um, we, we, we talked to a lot of people, um, but what we did find was that the bamboo, this off-chain signaling on-chain settlement was not actually exactly what they were looking for at that period of time. And there was not much money in it. So like either we would have to be paying through the nose or this had to be some incredible act of charity. Um, so we decided, all right, well, that's difficult. Um, we're going to go ahead and we're going to build our I tokens and our P tokens and all that phase two of the program. So we started building it and we realized 
you know, we, we kept trying to think, we're like, man, it just seems so hard to technically get these uh, tokenized loans to work, to play well with the off-chain signaling and on-chain settlement. And so we went in circles for a very long time trying to figure that out. We built out a lot of it and we, we ended up, you know, thinking like, okay, well, how do we end up doing price discovery on these things? How, how are we gonna do like an on-chain order book? And at that time, Compound had kind of like come out with this new model where they had this curve and, you know, it, was a, it, it applied the AMM model to um, basically the lending markets. And we looked at that and we, we basically had our tokens built out. And so we're like, well, Compound has this model. It's pretty interesting. Uh, we could do like an on-chain order book that would probably, you know, supposedly that could get us like closer to price discovery, like closer to the market efficient price with lower spreads. But on the other hand, the compound model was very easy to bootstrap and wouldn't require market makers. We were seeing the success of it. So we said, okay, you know what? I think this model might actually be the right one. And so we went with it. Um, you know, we gave full credit. Um, to compound, um, attributed um, all of that to them. Um, it looked at, and you know, as time progressed, it looks like everybody else basically came around um, to this idea that okay, you know, let's do an AMM uh, for lending markets. Um, and so we kept working. We um, we built out um, that piece of the protocol. Then we we were in this sort of uh, space where the industry was saying, hey, um, are you doing protocols or are you doing products? And, and you know, they're saying, are you living in the past or are you hip? And every panel you went to, the moderators were pitching that question to just about everybody. I, you know, kind of spoon feeding them, like, do you know the right answer to this? <laughs> and, you know, back then I was saying, well, you know, we have our feet in both pools. We, we're doing a little pro protocol. We're doing a little product but people wanted to hear that we are doing products we're just going so far into product and at that time we were we built fulcrum we built torque okay so let's talk about your product stack you have the protocol layer and i'm guessing that you're calling that b0x and then you have uh two products on top fulcrum and uh torque torque why the uh division in products uh, are there different use cases, different uh, user bases? Why come to that decision instead of building one single portal with two subsets? So you know, original. So originally, we had um, we had some ideas about Torque that it would kind of be this um, this borrowing platform that had universal access to it, and we wanted to really tailor the user flow to specifically just borrowing the least amount of words, the least amount of decisions to make. Um, so we wanted to create one where you could use any wallet. So you could just come to it from anywhere very easily, your phone, um, what have you. Um, so we had two, we had, the user flow for Torque kind of went um, on two different directions. Like one, one direction was say you had a MetaMask wallet or Web3 wallet, you would go through, You'd click borrow, you would hit the quantity, you hit okay, and you would be done with your loan. So we wanted something that was just three clicks, you knew who you were, you got it. And the alternative was, say you didn't have a MetaMask, you didn't wanna mess around with MetaMask, uh, you could just go and type in 
um, dai.tokenloan.eth into your MyEther wallet, MyCrypto, uh, send some ETH, and immediately you would get a DAI loan. Um, and, the, you, and the user interface was really set up to kind of facilitate uh, those kinds of user flows. So, I, and you know, we were, we were to some extent, we'll say, you know, we were kind of um, inspired a little bit by version one of Dharma. People, you know, praise Dharma a lot for um, like the innovative flow, the fact that you didn't need the wallet and all of that. And we felt like there were some things that they didn't get quite right on that. Um, especially like they really catered towards centralized exchanges and it led to having to like kind of copy and paste things twice and they didn't have user readable addresses. We wanted to cut out the whole middleman where it's like somebody could tell you the address, you could type it, it's human readable, send it, and the whole flow was done. Um, and so that was our like original um, kind of vision for Torque. What we found was that there was not a lot of use of the ENS system. While a lot of people like were really excited about the idea and like VCs we would talk to and stuff like that, we would mention like ENS, like loans by sending your assets to an ENS domain, we'd get people like writing down, they'd be like, wow, okay. But when it came time to use it, when we kind of unleashed it on the market, we didn't see everybody just swarm it, praise us, oh my God, this is the revelation. Uh, what we mostly saw was a bunch of nothing. And I, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the root cause behind it is, but I will say we, ha we have one suspicion. And that's the first time you set up your ENS loan, it costs maybe like $8 in transaction fees. Okay. Because we were like deploying a contract, assigning you an ENS subdomain. We were doing this like complicated stuff in the background. Um, and all of that costs a lot. We did come up with a way to drastically reduce the cost via counterfactual deployments of the contract and the ENS domain, um, and the counterfactual deployment of the ENS subdomain. Um, but we weren't really sure the demand was there. So like we could put the time in that. It's not too much more work to bring down the gas costs enormously to have that audited. But it's unclear how much the market's actually demanding that at this point. Um, so that was some of the thinking behind Torque. Um, in terms of unifying the interfaces, we do, we do like having the option to kind of have like these very tailored experiences because if you're a borrower, you're not, you're not necessarily a lender and you're almost certainly a different person from a trader. If you're a borrower, you might be like an ICO that's trying to manage your funds or you might be some kind of like all in type uh, crypto holder who's like trying to just get some liquidity from their holdings. Whereas if you're using Fulcrum, you're like a trader, you're, you're, you're like a day trader, you're, you're making moves, you have their, you're like, you're very opinionated about the direction of the market. So we kind of saw those as very different people, but um, kind of coming into the next um, evolution of the product, we are coming out with a full Chrome Pro um, that is going to have a lot of features, like limit orders that people have been demanding. And it's going to be in Fulcrum Pro that we're going to start thinking about having kind of like everything in one spot. So we we've been aiming towards like a more simplified, uh, like a less sophisticated audience, somebody who wanted to just things have be more simple 
and be more clear. And I think we definitely saw that um, there's a lot of room for that, but we want to have a more sophisticated offering um, for more seasoned users. And that might be where we put everything together, um, where we're not so worried about um, adding just a small amount of complexity to the product. Walk me through a margin loan. How, if I had, if I had ETH in my wallet and I want to go uh, 4X long, tell me step-by-step step how that uh, would happen. How would I use uh, one of your products to go uh, 4X long? Yeah, exactly. So um, you could go to fulcrum.trade. Let's, let's take, can... sorry, let's take uh, numbers as an example, right? So let's say uh, ETH, let's say it's $200 today. So I have sure. one ETH. And I have, so two hundred dollars worth of eat in my wallet. Uh, so let's let's go from here. Yeah, sure. So you go to fulcrum.trade. You hit trade. Hit forex accept in the deposit um, box. You hit one ETH. Right. That'll show you that you're going to take a position that is in total four ETH. You hit accept. That one ETH goes into the vault uh, from the lending pool. So you're going to be getting three ETH worth of DAI. If DAI is at 200, 200 times three is 600. 600 DAI comes into the vault. The vault acts as a trader. So it takes those 300, uh, 600 DAI and it swaps it out for three ETH. Now in the vault, there's four ETH total. So you're exposed to four ETH. You put in one ETH as collateral. So now let's say the price of ETH goes up. Price of ETH goes up 50%. It's now $300. You borrowed 600 DAI, right? But you have now 300 times four, you have 1200 um, DAI uh, worth of ETH. So you can return, you can sell that ETH, get, uh, so you sell those three ETH, right? So from that, uh, you get 900, you return the 600 DAI, you have 300 um, DAI left over, that's your profit. So now you have that one ETH you started with and an additional one ETH worth of DAI, 300 DAI, and uh, you just profited 50% from, or sorry, you just profited 50% times four from the market going up. Okay, so I have two follow-up questions. One is, uh, where is this extra money coming in from what is on the other side like who is depositing it into the pool and how are they compensated all right so um there are lenders those lenders are giving you those margin funds that you can trade with in order to get into a leverage or short position in exchange for the time value of their money you give them a certain percentage some apr that is controlled by supply and demand so there's a demand curve and essentially it's more or less linear uh, with some, some differences at the extremes. But um, the more supply there is, the lower the rate you have to pay. Um, the higher the supply, the lower your rate, the lower the supply, uh, the higher your rate. Um, so it's that simple. Okay, so it comes from a pool. Now, because these addresses, these borrowers are uh, pseudo-anonymous, uh, what is to stop me from going in, depositing my one ETH, which is at $200, uh, getting a total of uh, you know three extra ETH, and then uh, uh, withdrawing that to my wallet and disappearing? Ah, yes. So you can only withdraw what you put in 
minus plus or minus your profits, uh, right? So if you so like the vault, right, is 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 the one actually trading. If you told the vault, hey, okay, so you you borrowed that money and now give me all that money, the vault will say, I'll I'll give you the one ETH you gave me, but I can't, you know, unless something happens with this price, you can't get any more or less. So that is a real innovation where you're relying on the security of the smart contract from users absconding with the with the funds. Yeah, yeah. Our insight was like, hey, let's have this escrow contract do the trading in place of the trader so that the trader can't run away with funds. Okay. So my second follow-up question there is you have three tokens on the platform. You have the B0X tokens, you have the I tokens and the P tokens. In that process, that walkthrough that you did, uh, what is being generated at each step and uh, what's, the, what's the point of these tokens? Okay. Um, so... Yeah, um, I guess I'll start with the I tokens. So the I tokens represent a share of the pool. So if you um, earn, so if you um, mint some amount of I tokens, that entitles you to some percentage of this I token pool. So right? the I tokens are similar to the C tokens on the compound side. Right. Right. Exactly. So you know, we we uh, kind of. We, we, we were the ones who like initially published this idea of tokenized loans with in an article with MakerDAO, um, like in the summer of 2018. And then we published the technical specs for iTokens um, in March of 2019. Uh, later on, um, Compound uh, used uh, designs very similar to it and uh, popularized it uh, to a large extent. Um, but yeah, they're very similar. Uh, the one difference, uh, or there's two differences, I would say. Uh, one of them is that Compound uh, uses um, blocks rather than uh, timestamps um, in order to calculate the interest. So um, th this has caused Compound's interest to often actually be significantly off. Um, during the, the last Ice Age, they were off by about 15%. They were actually giving you better um, than the label, but it did cause it to be off. Um, and Open Zeppelin kind of like mentioned that they should probably transition to timestamps. So we, our design had the timestamps to begin with. And then the other difference is that um, in the case of a default, if a default um, goes through, um, what happens is the losses are socialized across the pool. Whereas uh, with Compound, there's sort of a, a bank run situation where it's a hot potato. The first one to get out uh, sort of wins. Um, and we, so we had a situation that's sort of like an intermediate um, of those uh, situations um, earlier this year with uh, the, the attacks that, you know, everyone has basically heard of, um, where essentially we delayed a loss from being realized into the pool um, until the insurance fund is large enough to absorb that loss. Um, but this does kind of have like the, a similar effect um, as if we had the compound system where it's sort of a hot potato. But in the event that, um, you know, there's no insurance fund and the DAO decides that we're, they're going to let the loss pass through, then everyone shares in the loss equally. Okay, so that's the I token. What about the P token? So the P token represents a position. It's a pooled position. So it's a token that when you mint it, it goes up, you know, $4 for every 
dollar Ethereum goes up and vice versa. Um, these are really cool because they're very composable, very powerful. You can put them in like token sets. And as mentioned, you could um, whitelist them as a DEX, uh, as a solution for DEXs. So like, you know, if you were KyberSwap or something like that, you could very easily use P tokens, um, just listed as you would any ERC-20 and immediately your DEX becomes supercharged with mar margin trading capabilities. This really uh, shines on layer two where when you're trading that ERC-20 on layer two, you're getting instant execution like a centralized exchange. Uh, so we're really proud of this innovation. Um, you know, there, there was um, DYDX originally um, had a product um, that they called uh, margin tokens that were kind of similar, um, but they had a, a very different uh, structure to it where um, their tokens would they would expire every 28 days, whereas ours are perpetual. And then the other thing is that their um, leverage would sort of like fluctuate. So like their 2X token might be more like a 6X token. And so people getting into it, uh, like so somebody would come to the expo side and maybe want 2X and they would see that the 2X is at 6X and there's no 6X. And also there's like two different dates for it. Um, so it kind of caused a little bit of a, a UX headache and um, our design sort of sidesteps some of these issues, which I think is what allowed it to become so popular and really take off when it did. Okay. And then the B0X token? And so the BZX to uh, the B0X token, um, basically this is a governance token. Um, and uh, so it's going to be used to run the DAO. It's going to be, we're going to let people vote on how exactly it's going to be monetized, but We've pre pre presented some um, ideas for that that we think um, are very interesting and that kind of coordinate uh, the incentives of uh, the people participating in governance um, with the protocol over the long term and towards the health of it. Um, so it, it's important that the there's quite a few parameters on the protocol that will probably need some sort of tending to over time. And it's very important that whoever is doing it um, has some sort of revenue source, has some sort of incentive that um, there's sort of a sustainable pattern to it. So the proposal that we have is basically that um, you, whatever percentage of BZRX you have can be used to redeem an equivalent percentage of whatever uh, insurance fund is there and not um, composed of BZRX itself. So say there's, you know, 99 ETH and one BZRX in the insurance fund, and you have, uh, you know, 99% uh, of the BZRX, you could, you know, replace that 99 Ethereum, and then it would be 100% BZRX. How are you measuring success of the entire BZRX network? So um, I would say that we measure our success largely in terms of revenue. Um, our so we, since we launched Fulcrum <coughs> last June, um, what we saw was that we were getting pretty nice uh, revenue from being a Kyber affiliate. So um, Kyber would kick back 0.075% of the fees that um, like our contract would generate. Um, and for us, this is kind of like um, the guiding star in terms of are we, are we improving? Like where are we going as a company? Because really like, 
we're getting we're getting to the stage where other companies um, in our industry as well are getting to like the sustainability phase where we are starting to levy some amount of fees in such a way that we can keep our doors open without um, just like continuously burning our runway. Um, so we're looking at that, but we also are looking at um, like user metrics and user retention. User retention is just insanely important. There's very few DeFi users. And so it can also be a little bit misleading, like, you know, your revenue is higher, your volume is higher, but it turns out you like, you lured just one whale to the platform. And while yes, that's real money, like you want to see it all be part of like a larger holistic continuous trend where you're, you, you, the, the, there's just more users on the platform and more volume going through. We, we are a lot less interested in like total value locked. And, you know, it, it's interesting because like the entire like lending side, sort of the traditional lending side, like how Compound and Aave do it, there's like, there's really almost no money to it. There's not a lot of revenue. So like that side of our business is not like as important to us or in terms of like the sort of metrics that we measure. Um, I'd say that having those sort of functionalities helps our central business, which is our trading platform, function more smoothly and efficiently with the market. Okay, so why don't you just walk me through what happened on uh, doing ETH Denver, which was Feb 13 or 14. Uh, that was one long sleepless night for you guys. And then uh, the second hack. Yeah, so, uh, you know, we'd come out, we'd come home from the first day of ETH Denver. We were at, uh, we were at like the compound uh, TBTC uh, after party, kind of hanging out with people and all of that. And uh, yeah, we noticed something really weird happen um, with the ETH pool and the interest was super high. We had somebody, um, so it was like uh, Ryan uh, at Zero Collateral DeFi. He was like, oh man, look at the interest rates on Fulcrum, you know, so great. I want to get in on that. And I was like, wow, yeah, that's a really interesting interest rate. But it made me feel a little bit uneasy. And uh, so, you know, I talked to Tom and I'm like, hey, you know, this seems weird. Um, and then we got, you know, we, we got alerted to, hey, you know, um, basically there was this huge attack and the way that it happened. And so we, we took a taxi home, sobered up, started working right away. Uh, you know, it feels very strategic that they got us like at the after party at East Denver. Um, so started working right away. Basically, uh, you know, we worked through the night with people like Sam ZZ Sun and like Lev and uh, Palco at uh, Symbolic Capital. It was such a sophisticated attack that like, I mean, it really took like all of us working all night um, to like actually crack this thing like and unravel like where did this thing actually go wrong? I also had people were like, God, oh, how can they not? You know, how come it's taking so long for them to figure it out? They wanted us to have it in like a few hours, but they didn't realize like, you know, and it wasn't even just us, like, you know, Peck Shield, almost every security researcher was on it. And, you know, we were the first ones to crack it, but like, it was, it was a really, it was a really tricky one because we had never really seen anything quite like this before. And it required understanding quite a few protocols and the, the problem in our protocol was actually like fairly esoteric and how some flag got got 
you know, misflagged way up the logic stack and it caused something far lower down to get mis, misflagged. But anyway, so what happened was that they were able to make a very large trade uh, through Uniswap. And what this ended up doing was this ended up um, just creating just a massive amount of slippage, huge, huge amount. And what they were able to do was atomically harvest that slippage as profit. So like normally what would happen is if somebody tried to do something that big and they hit that much slippage, the trade would um, revert, right? So like, it would be like, hey, at the end of this trade, you didn't have enough collateral. So, you know, like you can do anything you want uh, at the beginning, but like at the very end, we check like, hey, is your loan properly collateralized? And they were able to bypass this check. And, you know, like essentially they kind of went down like the code for like a torque loan rather than like the fulcrum loan that we were like expecting them to have um, and that they actually did take out in the first place. So this is what happened. And so they caused that huge slippage, came back around, our, the Uniswap pool harvested it as profit um, and then they got away. And so that was basically due to a bug in the code. Um, you, know, we, you know, we thought about it long and hard, uh, you better believe. And, and basically, you know, we, we do believe that, you know, better testing, better processes, um, uh, you know, static, static testing and fuzzing, all the, all these different tools like Slither, Echidna, Manticore. If we had been hitting um, our protocol with all of those things, we do think we could have prevented um, this type of thing from happening. Um, you know, some context, we, you know, we are like kind of a smaller player with less funding compared to maybe some of the people we were competing with. We had a lot of pressure to move fast, you know, like our competitors are like some of the biggest names in the industry with Coinbase backing in San Francisco. And, you know, we were not, and we felt a lot of pressure to move very quickly. And, you know, in retrospect, we, we shouldn't move slower. We wish we did move slower and we will move slower. And. Okay. And then the second attack, what was that? So the second attack. When um, was that? Yeah. You know, we we uh, went up to ETH Denver. We were uh, the sponsors of the ETH Denver um, uh, Ski Lodge uh, retreat. And uh, so we had come up there. We had gone. It was snowing. We walked uh, to a restaurant and we ordered a bunch of food, big meals, like $100. They brought out all the food. And Tom has his phone out and he notices a weird transaction and he traces it. And the moment the food hits the table, Tom gets up, he says, we've been hacked and we got to go. And we just have to leave all of this food right on the table. And, you know, and so I just, I just pay the whole bill and I just walk out the whole table of pristine food. The people, you know, serving in the restaurant must think we're just like the biggest jerks in the world. And so it's snowing and we're like, we basically start sprinting home and uh, we get there and we analyze it. We send it off to Kane Warwick. We send it to Sam Zizi-san. We send it to Palkio. We send it to Lev. We send it to you know all these people. And you know it's 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 just like we thought they did this 
really weird attack where um, they they like synthetics SUSD the the Uniswap um, depot it has it has like a limit on trade sizes but apparently that really does very little and they just kept slamming it with the same trade size over and over and over again until they were able to make it go offline and then once they had made it go offline they were able to completely manipulate um, and automate uh, uh, the Uniswap price reserve. They were able to just come in, do whatever they wanted to it, and manipulate our Oracle. So this used kind of, you know, I mean, in retrospect, it seems obvious, I suppose, but like, you know, us, the Kyber guys, Sam ZC Sun, a lot of people thought over the attack vectors of how we were set up on Kyber, and nobody really thought up the, the idea of like, oh, let's just, you know, every Fed price reserve, if we just hit it over and over and over and over and over again, we can actually make it go silent so we can get to the like Uniswap type reserves that are hiding behind there and then would be vulnerable. So we like we had kind of thought like, oh, as long as we have this Fed price reserve, we would be fine. And what the attacker showed was that assumption was not correct and that actually all of our reserves were vulnerable to this general uh, pattern of attack and that's why we took the entire thing offline and we didn't come back for quite a while until we had um, a new Oracle solution um, you know while it would have been when we first were developing we kind of had the choice between a fully centralized Oracle um, and Kyber I suppose you could say um, in retrospect we should have gone for the fully centralized Oracle and waited for uh, better decentralized alternatives to come about. Um, and we didn't, and that was a mistake, but one that we've learned from. I'm curious about your, uh, your, uh, your thinking or your decision process behind uh, picking an Oracle. I know today Chainlink is the only viable option, but did you, uh, obviously you've, you've had some kind of framework, some kind of parameter box that you said, okay, it checks off all of these points. What are those? Uh, would love to know uh, uh, how how did you come up with that uh, criteria? Yeah. So in terms of like how we're thinking about our Oracle selection, I think like initially we went with Chainlink because I you know the number one security thing you can kind of look at is going to be you know what is the value of assets protected multiplied by the amount of time that you protected it. And that, that's probably going to give you the most direct signal in terms of security. Um, you know, of course, there, you know, the current solutions aren't perfect and I think uh, people recognize that. Um, so in terms of, um, you know, picking Chainlink as our Oracle solution going forward, you know, we recognize that they have the best track record in terms of this, in terms of basically the number one skin in the game metric that you have. Um, and I think that was probably what guided our decision making more than anything else, more than you know, esoteric um, technical details about how Chainlink works or like how they work uh, versus other Oracle solutions or like how decentralized they are versus or other Oracle solutions. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, we, we definitely put um, thought into 
multi-oracle type solutions. And it, part, part of what we're trying to do though is we're trying to approach things very slowly, um, very cautiously, um, and without being premature. So I think for us, um, moving to a multi-oracle solution before, um, it's kind of been shown that a significant amount of value can be protected over a significant amount of time. Um, it, would just, it would just be too early for us. And I realize that does put um, newer oracles in a little bit of a chicken and egg scenario, but that can't be our problem. What can users of B0X expect from the next version? And when is that coming out if you can share timelines? Yeah, so um, the next version, we, we, are, we are optimistic um, that it will be at the end of uh, June or maybe early to mid-July uh, at the latest, uh, let's say mid-July, honestly, because uh, sometimes that's how these timelines go. Um, so um, some of the things we can expect, so we're coming back, uh, we're going to be um, really paring down our focus on assets. We're going to have um, a risk assessment framework. We're going to be having um, like an emergency, uh, emergency response plan. We're going to be having um, you know, new security audits. We're going to be uh, work, we're kicking off. Uh, we're gonna have formal verification. So we're going to beef up our security. We're going to, uh, we're going to have drastically decreased lines of code. Uh, drastically decreased uh, numbers of contracts. We're reducing our features quite a bit. So a lot of the machinery from the base protocol, like the off-chain signaling, on-chain settlement, that's gone. Um, the ENS loans, that's gone. Um, so a lot of the features that we had before, um, those, those are not going to be there, but what will be there are the highly demanded features that people have really wanted. People for the longest time have said, hey, you know, I really want to know if my position has been liquidated. I want to know like at every step, what are, what's my trade profit? What's my loss? What are my fees? What is my slippage? And I want it all broken down to me so that I have like the full history. I want to have a rich order history. So all of those things are there. We have uh, limit orders. We're having a new pro interface. Um, that's going to be much more oriented towards um, like typical traders. Um, and then we're also refreshing um, the simple trade 2.0 uh, interface as well. So um, it's going to be like a big redesign on the front end, uh, new features, limit orders, order histories, all the stuff that people really wanted. We're taking out the stuff that people didn't want as much. So we're going to have lower gas costs. It's just going to be a much leaner, much meaner, much like lower surface, uh, lower attack surface protocol all in all. So we think, you know, before we left, people really loved us and we were offering something to the market. And as we come back, you're going to find that we're doing everything we did before, but like even better. And so, uh, and another big feature is uh, collateral management. Believe it or not, we were basically becoming the number one uh, margin trading platform. We had the number, we had the biggest die pool, we, and all without even like basic features like limit orders and collateral management. Um, so now we're coming back and we're bringing those things and we're just so excited to see what the community does with them. That's uh, actually very inspiring because if you're knocked down, you can either give up 
close shop or you can come back stronger and you guys are coming back stronger. That's awesome. Awesome. Kyle, while I have you uh, on the record, I want you to share something controversial either about the products, the teams, the investors, or uh, how the whole space is evolving. My controversial thought is that swaps are not competitors of margin platforms. Synthetics is a competitor of FutureSwap. FutureSwap's not a competitor of BZX. In fact, these swaps program, these swaps protocols are going to be one of the best things that happen to margin platforms.